Mac Power Users, episode 531, Teaching with Good Notes with David McDonald. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, along with my pal and yours, Stephen Hackett. Hey, David. Hi, Stephen. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Under the circumstances, I'm doing better than I should be. That's good. You got everybody under one house. You got a new dog. What else do you need? Yeah, you know, there there is some upside to all this madness, and I, I realize that the downside greatly outweighs it, but there is some upside. Got the kids home, and the new dog isn't biting me as much, so that's good. That's good. But um, we have a guest today. Welcome to the show, David McDonald. Thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, man, always. Anytime we get a musician on, you know, it gets me gets me going. I mm-hmm. love talking to musicians about technology. Uh, David, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am a composer and a music professor. I teach music composition theory and music technology at Wichita State University in Wichita, Kansas. This is my second year there. And before that, I uh, was in Orlando, Florida. And before Orlando, I was in Michigan. So been kind of doing similar things in in all of those places and uh the last five or six years been using my ipad a lot in all of my teaching practice yeah that's really what kind of got our interest is is how much of an ipad guy you are but you know you do so much more than that as well and it is interesting i always find you know for the teaching profession really is a vagabond lifestyle (laughs) you know it, it takes a lot of travel doesn't it yeah, especially in in higher ed, you you go where the jobs are, and there aren't that many jobs. So I, I feel actually pretty lucky to be in. Uh, you know, if you live in L.A. or, or Memphis, Wichita is not a very big city, but I, I feel pretty lucky that I I, I found a, a good place in a, a city of this size. Well, in addition to teaching, you're also a composer uh, for some commercial projects as well. Tell us about some of that. Yeah, so most of my music is what I trained to do in school. I am what uh, a friend of mine likes to call an expensively trained composer. And uh, most of what I do is kind of weird art music kind of stuff, which I think is really cool, and I acknowledge that it's pretty weird. But uh, I've recently been branching out into some newer things, and I just last year completed a music and sound design for one of the Apple Arcade launch titles, Possessions, if you have Apple Arcade, um, which is kind of a 3D puzzle game. Um, So that was the first game score that I had done, and it was uh, was pretty interesting. I just actually, as we're talking about a week or two ago, finished some uh, new music for some new downloadable content that's going to be coming in an update to that game, hopefully in the next week or three. I'm super impressed, and we're going to have links in the show notes to some of David's music on his various platforms. He's got his own website at davidmcdonaldmusic.com, but he's also on YouTube and and some other uh, platforms, so I want to share that. But uh, one of the things I really liked about having you on the show is not only are you this amazing composer, you're also doing you know real-world teaching with Apple technology, and you've got some great workflows for that too. But as always, whenever we have a guest on, the thing we all want to know, Anne, is is what kind of gear you're using. So <laughs> let's start with the Mac. What kind of Macs are you using? So uh, most of my composition takes place on the Mac, and most of my teaching takes place on the iPad. The Macs that I have in my rotation 
are uh, my laptop is a late 2013 13 inch MacBook Pro, and at the time I had it pretty close to spec'd out. Everything except the um, the uh, internal SSD was kind of maxed out. That's the obviously the really pricey one, um, and that is believe it or not my first Mac. So uh, the first one that I personally owned. I was all Windows and Android all through school, and uh, my one of my first gigs out of school was an all Mac shop, and they handed me a MacBook Pro 2012. This was uh, one of the unibody Macs that still had an optical drive, and uh, that really was my first Mac. And I know everybody talks about the um, the iPhone as the the Halo device to get people into the Apple ecosystem. For me, it was the other way around. Hmm. I had a, a Mac for about a year, and it took a little bit of adjustment, but I quickly figured out the things that I liked better about, especially Mac OS than Windows. And that caused me to want to get mobile devices that interacted better with my Mac because I had Android tab. I had probably three or four Android tablets by that time. Um, and so I, I was, I've always been a nerd. Uh, anyway, so that's my, my laptop and my desktop is a 2017, 27 inch iMac 5k. Um, I think it's the last generation of the iMacs before they introduced the iMac pro, uh, later that year. So that, uh, those are my two main, my, my main writing implements, um, outside of obviously just paper and pencil. Um, but they're, they are serving me well. I'm pleasantly surprised at how well my 2013, uh, MacBook pro is holding up. You know, I I had been hearing from a lot of people to say, you know, windows, they've really come a long way. It's a lot better now. So much so that I've been intentionally trying to not be abrasive about it on the show. Mm -hmm. And, um, my wife is working from home, uh, you know, as we go through this, and so she brought her work laptop home and the IT people are just, at her company are just overwhelmed. You know, it takes like five hours to get somebody on the phone. So when she's got a little IT problem, I've been trying to help her. So I've been using Windows again. And you know what? I was wrong. It's still terrible. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I, just, I mean, I feel like I know a lot about computers and getting it to do things is is mm-hmm. really like not very intuitive. Mac OS still is remarkably better than anything else on a, uh, on a traditional computing platform. I feel like it has changed so much just in the couple of years since I've been a like full-time windows user that I, I don't recognize anything anymore. I don't, and I, I don't know if it's like hard or weird or bad. It's just really unfamiliar to me. I, I now I feel uh, that I've had enough experience to say it is bad. <laughs> <laughs> So this is where I point out that I have a problem that I can't say David and know who we're who I'm talking to. So David Sparks, you are still going to be David, but David McDonald, we're gonna I'm gonna call you Doctor David because you've got a doctor in front of your name, and that will separate the two of you for the listener. How does that sound? I can live with that. Okay. So, uh, so Doctor David, not not regular David, Doctor David, guest David. Uh, you said that the Mac was sort of your way into the Apple ecosystem. And I was thinking, yeah, that's the same for me. And then I remember that I did it, you know, 20 years ago. <laughs> it's like there weren't any <laughs> other things. <laughs> um, but what what came next? So you, you got the Mac from this job. You're getting used to it. What was sort of the next step into the water? The next step was about not quite a year later, or maybe a little more than a year later, I got my first iPad, which was an iPad Air 2. 
uh, right when that came out, and I was trying to use an iPad Air 2 and a MacBook Pro and my Android phone for about a month and a half before I was able to upgrade that. And then my first uh, iPhone was the iPhone 6 Plus. And there were a couple of reasons that I was okay moving to iPhone at that time. The some of the things that I really liked about Android, like the the notifications and the uh, third party keyboards and the larger display, all came around that same time. Um, and then also that was I think around the time that AirDrop was starting to be supported in various uh, devices, and that is like a total game changer if you have enough other Apple devices. So, um, yeah, that was my first, my first iPhone and I still have it somewhere. Uh, and I occasionally will use it, like plug a microphone into it and use it as kind of a, a a handy portable recorder. So you really haven't been on the platform that long, but it sounds like you've really jumped on it. You said earlier that you, you've always been a nerd. Um, what were the things you lost going from Android to the iOS operating system that you, that you still miss if there are any? I still think Android does uh, a lot better with notifications. Um, iOS has gotten better at that. Uh, I like the options for customizing the home screen on Android a lot too. And the the biggest one, I guess, that I still really miss, I really like the way Android separates the idea of your home screen from your list of all your apps. I think that is a very good thing to do because as, as as we know, you know, most of the time we know where like maybe 10 to 12 of our apps are on our phones, home screens and everything else we search for. I would just as soon have everything automatically not show up on the home screen at all, put just the couple of things that I know that I want to have on the home screen and everything else can live in just an alphabetical list of all my apps which is um, basically what, what Android does. And I, I really like that. Yeah, one, one of the rumor sites just this week said that they see code in iOS 14 that's supposed to allow something like that. Mm-hmm. And my initial reaction was, oh, but I kind of like it how it is. But then I got thinking, well, I've never really done it. I, I bet maybe if I could have customizable widgets on my home screen, I'd probably grow to love it. I don't know if I would do the widgets necessarily to the extent that I used to, but I do really like the idea of being able to place icons anywhere in the grid. Um, I, I mean, widgets are cool, and I certainly use the Today View widgets, but uh, I, I mostly like the idea of being able to place the app icons anywhere on the grid, and I don't have to use some kind of weird hack of hidden invisible icons or whatever. And uh, I also like not having to have every app that's installed on my phone on the home screen somewhere. Man, I would love it if you just open your phone to the today view, you know, because the stuff I really want to see is there. And, um, I don't know, but maybe I'm a weirdo. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> Man, didn't take long. <laughs> so, so you jumped into the, the big phone club. Uh, are you still there? Are you rocking the, uh, the 11 pro max? I am indeed. I have all of the the big the big big devices. My iPhone is the 11 Pro Max, and my iPad is the uh, the 20 uh, the 2018 12.9 inch iPad Pro. So yeah, I'm I, I I'm a fan of the big screens. I'm a big boy. <laughs> I say 27 uh 27 inch iMac, the big phone, the big iPad. Um, now so this is something 
Dave and I have talked a little bit about, but if there were an even bigger iPad, would you, would you like an iPad that was sort of like, you know, 16 inches or even bigger? hundred percent. If there was a, a 15 or 16 inch iPad, I would absolutely buy it. If there was a, a, a surface studio type of I, iOS device that was like the size of my 27 inch iMac, what I, what I really want is I want a 27 inch, uh, external multi-touch display that I could plug my iPad into when I want to do iOS things and that I could plug my MacBook Pro into when I want to do MacBook things and just have this one giant beautiful screen that can run I like basically dual boot iOS and macOS because there's enough things that I need to do in each and there's enough things that I would really love to have a giant display to do I think it would be it would be pretty great to be able to do iOS things on a a giant you know 27 inch display especially if it was on one of those cool hinges like the the surface pro studio or whatever it's called that you can kind of bring it down to like a, a writing desk type angle yeah i was just i was just about to say that just as i was dumping on microsoft 10 minutes ago every time i get to a mall and i get in that microsoft store i love to play with that big surface computer that's mm-hmm. essentially an imac with a awesome hinge in it that allows you to put it down to like a drafting table and I don't know what I'd do with it, but man, do I want one of those if it runs an iOS operating system. I, I, t- I know exactly what I'd do with it because in front of my Mac right now, as I'm talking to you, on the surface of my desk, I have a giant sheet of manuscript paper. Yeah. Uh, staff paper. And that's really important to me. It's something that I impress upon my students is that I always want them to start all of their projects on paper so they're not making any creative decisions about their pieces based on what's easiest to do in the software. Uh, And so I start, and I really like working on, this giant 12-inch by 18-inch sheet of manuscript paper, and it's a landscape 18 inches across, 12 inches tall sheet of manuscript paper, and I have a pencil that I really like and an eraser that I'm happy with. And that's how I start all of my projects. If I had a screen that was about that size that I could use with the Apple Pencil, which I adore, uh, I would be very, very happy. Yeah, that that's really nice. I, I do a setup with the, um, I have a stand for my 12.9-inch iPad that lays underneath my iMac. And I find myself pulling the pencil out and using it all day long. Uh, with that, I, I got to mention one thing totally unrelated to Mac Power users. Um, I was watching the Star Wars extras. You know, the movie came out, the latest uh, episode nine came out, and they've got a whole special in there about John Williams, the composer who wrote all this great music. And at one point, they show him working on writing the music, and he is writing it with a ballpoint pen. <laughs> Ooh. He's got like a big pen, and he's just sitting there writing the score to Star Wars. And that I, that is some serious confidence to write in pen. That's yes. like doing the that's like doing the crossword in pen times a thousand. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I've never. I just like my daughter who's into music as well, and I we both like looked at that, and we both said, "Did you just see that?" <laughs> that's got. They had to just like stage that for that shot. There's no way he actually writes with a big pen. I, you know what? I think John Williams. He's been around long enough. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I think John Williams can afford a nicer pen, though. Come on. Yeah, I know. But he just picked up a pen. He started <laughs> writing the score a bit. Well, introduce him to the pen addict. Yeah, I was going to say, can we get Brad and Mike to send him something nice? Yeah. 
<laughs> anyway, so uh, so you've got the big iPad, the big iPhone, and the and the pair of Macs. What? How is the 2013 MacBook Pro holding up at this point? It is uh, showing its age mostly in terms of battery. And the other thing is just like weird crap I've installed over the last, last you know, eight years of seven or eight years of owning it. You know, you, you just try try this thing, try that thing. And, you know, I've done little weird programming projects that involve installing weird subsystem whatever things that I don't quite understand. But I'll, you know, irresponsibly copy and paste terminal commands from the Internet. Uh, so, it, you know, it's mostly fine. The battery life is you know, maybe 45-ish minutes uh, if I'm not doing too much crazy heavy-duty stuff. Um, but that's that's really the main thing. It still runs the latest operating system. I use it. So one of the classes that I'm teaching right now is a special topics music technology class in uh, music for film and games. And so if you you saw any of the promo stuff they were doing for the Mac Pro where they had these logic projects that had tracks that had all these really, you know, uh, intensive virtual instruments on them to show how they're using all of those cores and, you know, using all of that RAM. I'm not doing anything with like a thousand software instrument tracks, but I am doing stuff with some software instrument tracks on my 2013 inch uh, uh, MacBook Pro in the classroom for demonstration purposes. Um, so, you know, it, it it actually does still hold up pretty, pretty well. Um, so I, I've, I'm pleasantly surprised. There's no, speaking of dumping on Windows, there's no Windows machine that uh, I could continue using for this long for this much like high level stuff. Well, you know, the battery is easy to solve. I, I think that's the one that does not have the removable battery cover, right? It that's does after. not. It does yeah. not. Yeah. But, I mean, you can take it in an Apple store and for not a lot of money, replace the battery. But I thought you were going to say storage. I always hear, when I hear from people that have computers that old, it's usually they run out of storage. Well, uh, I have a half terabyte in it, which served me well for quite some time. And I wish it was more, but since about a year-ish ago, whenever Dropbox turned on the the Dropbox Infinite or whatever they call it for uh, consumer Dropbox accounts, uh, where it will kind of do the iCloud thing where it tries to guess what things it should have locally and will offload things as it sees fit mm-hmm. to its cloud. I've been using that, and I have been very happy with it. I use the heck out of Dropbox. And, you know, iCloud's really cool. And uh, like a lot of people, I, I wish it did the things that Dropbox does, uh, but I don't I don't see myself getting rid of Dropbox anytime soon. Stephen, uh, as the resident expert how hard is it to replace the battery on those machines after they took off the uh, removable cover it's not super easy there's a lot of glue involved it's uh oh, that's probably that's not a, that might the, be a deal breaker yeah it's probably not for the the casual mac user but it, it is possible you could have it done but um you know not not as I, easy as it once was that's for sure but like i know like i'm sure an apple certified repair guy could do oh, it yeah. or or uh, even i don't know do they replace batteries in the apple store for computers that old or do they send you off to i mean a 2013 repair? would be considered vintage and so i don't think apple would touch it yeah you have to go third party sadly even though the, this is a city of four hundred thousand people there is no apple store in wichita it is the largest city in kansas and there's no apple store within about a two-hour drive of here well that's no fun 
Yeah, it's it's really really bad because in Orlando I had three Apple stores that I could drive to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even we have one. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by SoundSource from Rogue Amoeba. SoundSource is one of those control utilities that's so good, it's a shame that it's not just built into macOS. Whether you listen to podcasts, blast music, stream video, whatever, SoundSource is for everyone who uses audio on their Mac. This is one of those utilities that I've used for a really long time, and when I sit down at a computer that doesn't have it, things feel a bit broken, and that's the highest praise I can give a utility. SoundSource has a ton of great features. It gives you per-app audio control, letting you change the volume of any individual app and route any app's audio to different audio devices. For better sound quality, you can boost volume levels, add an equalizer, and you can even apply advanced audio units to any audio on your Mac. Get fast access to your Mac's audio devices. There's no digging around the system preferences when you need to adjust things. And if you have a display port or HDMI device that tries to take over volume adjustment and then doesn't let you do it, SoundSource can help there too. It gives those devices a proper volume slider, which means you can use the super volume keys feature to make your keyboard volume controls work as well. So it all feels like it should. And all this power is available right from your menu bar with SoundSource. Visit macaudio.com MPU to check it out. Download a free trial, and when you are ready to purchase, and I know you will be, you will save 20% off with the coupon code MPU20. That's MPU20. Once again, macaudio.com slash MPU and the coupon code MPU20 for 20% off. Our thanks to the audio wizards at Rogue Amoeba for sponsoring the show. So Dr. David, uh, we... What jumped out at me in your email to us was your use of good notes in education. So while you're teaching, good notes is is kind of become your digital whiteboard. And I wonder if you could talk us through a little bit about what that workflow looks like for you. Sure. So in in my teaching, I, I have essentially two different kinds of teaching that I do. I do classroom teaching, which pretty much looks like normal classes that everyone else has had. There are between, you know, 10 and 30 students in a classroom, all sitting in small desks, looking up at the front of the room. Um, One slight difference is that there's a grand piano in most of the classrooms that I teach in. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't have any of that in college. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And then another kind of teaching that I do that we might also talk about separately is uh, one-on-one private lessons. So if you ever had a voice lesson or a clarinet lesson or a piano lesson or whatever, I do those kinds of lessons, but for composers instead of uh, instrumentalists. Um, And so I'll, I'll talk first about the classroom part of it. So when I go into the classroom every day I go to teach, I bring my iPad. Sometimes I bring my Mac if I know I need to demonstrate something that is uh, a desktop specific thing. Um, But I will also always bring my Apple TV. Uh, And thankfully, our classrooms have HDMI connected to the projector and the audio. This is actually a thing that I have learned in institutional setups. A lot of times they will have HDMI, but that HDMI box that you're connecting to is not connected to the audio, which is very annoying. Um, but and my previous institution didn't have HDMI at all. It only had VGA, so I had to bring a, a converter thing that I also had to plug into power to convert VGA to HDMI. But 
once that's all set up, things are great. Um, one awesome thing about the uh, current Apple TVs and iPads and Macs is they have uh, multi-input, multi-output uh, wireless connections. So what that means is in a hostile networking environment, like a large university or corporate network, you can essentially, and it's, this is all done completely transparently, you don't need to worry about it, set up a point-to-point ad hoc network with a nearby Apple TV. It doesn't need to be on the Wi-Fi network if you are trying to get an Apple TV onto any kind of corporate secured wireless network. Good luck to you. I've never had success with it, but uh, you don't need to. It doesn't actually need to be on the same network as anything else, which is awesome. Um, And so I will project everything that I do onto uh, the screen and I then can walk around the classroom and I can use in GoodNotes a GoodNotes template that has a music staff on it so I can write in staff notation and move around the room. I can set my uh, iPad on the, the what's called the desk, the music stand of the piano there so I don't have to kind of turn around and try to read over my shoulder while playing the piano keyboard in front of me. It's really, really nice for those kinds of things. And there's a lot of other great uh, features that come with using GoodNotes as my whiteboard. Um, One of them is that when students are working on their own uh, kind of tasks at, at their desks, I can go around and see how they're doing and help them out. And if I see somebody doing something that um, the rest of the class could learn from, I can use the camera on my iPad because it's got a camera, not a great one, but it's a perfectly fine one uh, to just snap a little picture and drop that directly into the GoodNotes notebook. And that shows up on the screen and I can then mark it up with my Apple Pencil and we can say what's doing, what's working in that task or what's not working in that task and how to correct it as a group. Or we could have them kind of create their own thing. I could put it up on the screen and have the entire class sing it. Um, so there's all kinds of things like that that I can do um, that I could never do with a, a regular whiteboard or, or blackboard. Um, another thing that is uh, really great about working this way is the way split screen works for uh, the, the GoodNotes application. It uses the external display APIs, which allow it to have a lot more finite control over what you actually see on the external display. So when I airplay to the Apple TV, it doesn't literally mirror everything that is on my iPad's screen, which is very useful if I need to plan an entire lesson. I will have good notes in split view with usually Ulysses is where I do my uh, lecture outlines. And so when I have good notes on the left and Ulysses on the right, when I share my screen with AirPlay, only GoodNote shows up on the projector screen. And so the students don't see what I have going on. They don't see uh, the things that I have prepared or any kind of analysis that I've prepared that we're going to walk through. And so we can, we can, I can kind of keep organized and not have to go back and forth between a bunch of different screens or a bunch of different applications, um, which is really, really useful. Um, Another thing that I do all the time is I will bring in a third app in SlideOver to uh, play audio. I try, a lot of times in music theory, it's easy to like get lost in the weeds of the abstractions and pointing at dots and lines on a staff. And I always try to make sure that I'm connecting all the concepts that we're talking about with 
music, which is sound. And so I, I try to always play examples. And so I will play examples from Spotify or from something else. If, if it's a, an audio file that I have, I will usually play back audio files in, believe it or not, Goodreader, oh, yeah. um, which is an app that you may not have used very much lately, but it's still going strong. Um, one thing that I like about Goodreader, I have not found a lot of other applications that will work like this, that have a setting like this, is that in Goodreader, I can, first of all, I can sync with any uh, cloud sync service. But second of all, the thing that a lot of these other uh, applications like this won't do is there's they won't play a single MP3 file and stop. They always want to play the next MP3 file in the folder because they, they want to work like Spotify, right? Sure. They want to keep having music and keep, you know, keep the party going. But I want to play a 15-second MP3 file and then talk about it. Uh, and so uh, Goodreader works great for that. Um, so I will bring Goodreader over and slide over and play a little example. I can have the score in uh, GoodNotes shown on the screen and my lecture notes in uh, Split View on the right. And it all, like, all those things together work great every time. The last really cool feature of GoodNotes that I make really extensive use of both in my uh, lecture classes and in my one-on-one -on -one lessons is GoodNotes' uh, auto backup feature. So auto backup in uh, GoodNotes is a feature that went away initially when GoodNotes went from version 4 to version 5. It was a little bit like the, um, the iWork transition that happened when uh, iWork got its big update on iPad and then everything got simplified on the Mac to match. Um, and so it's slowly been building those things back. And the one that I was really holding out for just came in January, and that is this auto backup feature. So normally GoodNotes syncs over iCloud so that you can open GoodNotes on your Mac or your phone or your iPad and everything, all your notebooks are in sync. But uh, what the auto backup feature does is it makes a copy and stores it in a different cloud storage service. And critically, you can make that extra backup as a PDF file instead of a GoodNotes file, which means it can be opened by anybody that has any reasonably useful computer. And so what I do for all of my classes is for the whiteboard, I actually never erase anything. In GoodNotes, you can, if you kind of swipe to go to the next page and there is no next page, by default, it will just create a new page that is identical to the current one, at least using the same template. So if I've got staff paper as my template and I swipe to a new page, it will just add a new blank page of staff paper. And so what I do in class is that I never erase anything. I just add a new page and add a new page and add a new page. And that is continually getting uh, saved to Dropbox as a PDF. And then the, the next, the, the beauty part, if you will, is that I can then take that PDF on Dropbox and make it a public link. And so I can take a public link to that Dropbox file that has all of our class whiteboard for the whole semester. And I can just post a link to it on our courses learning management system. So at, at our university, we use uh, Blackboard and you could do the same thing in Canvas or Moodle or Google Classroom or whatever it is you're using. And then I could just 
save all of those every time I edit anything. Like basically as soon as I stop writing on the notebook, it gets saved to Dropbox and then that is updated for students pretty much immediately, uh, which is really great for them for review. Um, obviously, it doesn't always like make complete total sense out of the context of me talking while I'm writing on the board, mm -hmm. but it's a really great tool for like reviewing for a midterm or a final exam or something for them to go back and just look at every example we've ever put on the board and see all those, all those kind of outlines and concepts that we've talked about for the whole semester. Yeah, that's cool. I remember a lot of my professors in college and big classes, you know, you would get the PowerPoint as a PDF and you could take notes on it or print it and take notes, but it wasn't, really reflective of what happened in the course, right? So if someone asked a question and we took a left turn, that wasn't represented in those slides, right? But the way you're doing it, you were kind of making a, a, a Hansel and Gretel type little trail for your students to follow when they study that takes the turns that you took in the classroom. Yeah, and, and I will, um, sometimes as I'm preparing for class, I will it not exactly makes slides for the class, but I will add some blank pages and I'll put in some headings of things that we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. And then while I will write on the staff to give the examples of the things that were, that are in the headings or what I'll do is there's a, um, uh, a digital version of our textbook and I will, for some of the very short musical examples where, you know, they want to talk about some concept that's only, you know, two to five measures long or whatever, I'll just screenshot that little score excerpt with the author's analysis in it and paste it into the notebook. And then I can mark that up and give even further context to it um, and talk through the example in class. Uh, or if there's another example that I want to bring in from another source, I can screenshot that and drop it in. If I ever want to bring in a, a, a full score of another whole piece or something, I can do the same thing. I can bring that into good notes and mark up that whole score or mark up a handout or something like that. And I can do the same thing and provide them a link with the marked up score or the marked up handouts or whatever, um, in, in whatever way I want, either an email or in the, the learning management system. And, uh, that, that has worked really, really well for them in the past. One thing that I'll do, I don't, I really like keynote, but I'm using good notes most of the time. If there's something that I really want in a very structured way to make like a list of things and show them a list, uh, you know, like here's an example of a thing that I do for this. This is super nerdy. Nobody needs to know what this means. Here are the four different kinds of six, four chords we're going to talk about. And so I will make that list in a keynote slide, export it as a PDF, and then bring that one page PDF into the lesson notebook. Or sometimes I'll even prepare something even more intricate in Keynote that I explicitly intend to go back and write on in a particular way during class. And by doing that in Keynote, exporting as a PDF and then putting it in the, uh, the whiteboard notebook for the class, all of the markup happens there and the students can still watch me kind of create the slides in real time and then have the completed slide at home later that night. Okay. People don't realize Keynote can be a graphic design tool. I mean, oh, yeah. And, and it, it's got some great tools for that. Uh, one of the advantages of the way you do it, as opposed to Stephen's um, teachers that just gave you the entire presentation, I feel like it's very hard to keep the students or the listeners' attention on the speaker when they've got the whole slide deck because mm -hmm. they're inevitably going to page forward 
and you're just not going to have their attention. And you know, if you're teaching or trying to educate somebody about something, it's suboptimal. You know, so I, like I've always felt like I'll give you the slide deck after I'm done to try and keep your attention on me. But the way you're doing it, actually, because the deck is in, in essence pr- uh, created in, in during the process of talking, there's no way they can get what's going to happen in 30 minutes because it hasn't happened yet. I, I think that's really clever. Yeah. And then, I, I mean, I still am planning the same way that you would for that. I just keep that planning in uh, Ulysses. And, and I used to, by the way, do this in text files that I had in IA Writer or OneWriter. And I switched over because I kept getting frustrated that I couldn't add images into my notes because I would want to, for example, if you've ever taught or given a presentation of any kind, you may be familiar with this concept that I've, I've heard described as, as blackboard blindness or chalkboard blindness or whatever, where you just say and do dumb stuff that doesn't make any sense because you're doing it in front of other people and doing it really big and just not thinking about what you're doing. So... I have often a, a crutch of any analysis that I'm going to give live of an annotated score example. If it's something that I'm afraid I might screw up, which is most things, uh, I will do that in advance in GoodNotes, and then I will screenshot that you know pre-done analysis and drop that into my notes in Ulysses for the for the lesson, and then I'll basically in class have the uh, you know completed one on the right side in Ulysses and just kind of recreate it on the left side in GoodNotes again. Um, So it's just kind of like my little safety blanket. Like I could probably do it and it would probably be fine. But when I'm teaching beginners, I want to like try to avoid any opportunity to give them confusion. Yeah. No self-inflicted wounds. Right. Yeah, I, I have a similar disease whenever I push the record button on my screencast and I start typing, my fingers forget how to type. Uh, I don't know, but I think it's related. Same thing, yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of your workflow. Um, one of the first things you said is that you you often use AirPlay. And I get this email um, from lawyers in particular often because they're always panicked. They're going to go into a trial. They want to use AirPlay for, with their iPad. I did it all the time. I don't do as much trial work, but when I was doing it, I was using it. And um, I never had a disconnect or an embarrassing problem with AirPlay not working. But so many people are afraid of that, that they they go with the cable instead. Um, what's been the reliability of AirPlay for you on a daily basis? I feel like uh, AirPlay for me is incredibly reliable. The only times that I have had problems with AirPlay are when I am using a weird hacky AirPlay implementation. If I'm using one of these uh, Mac apps that behaves as an AirPlay server, which I, I had to do before I owned an Apple TV, that would sometimes flake out on me. And the other thing is, sometimes when I first connect to AirPlay, something weird will happen with the audio, and it will get kind of weird and poppy and crackly. That is something that will either go away in a minute or two, or if I just disconnect and reconnect, it will be fine. To help that out, I always try to make sure that the audio that I'm going to play, I store locally. So for every one of my classes and for every one of my private students, I have a Spotify playlist and I have each of those Spotify playlists set to sync locally. 
And in Goodreader, if I know that there's a musical example I'm going to play from an MP3 file in Goodreader, I always make sure that that is synced locally before class starts so that there's not like competing Wi-Fi traffic happening. But I, I've never, I, I shouldn't say never, but I can't remember the last time. I yeah, know that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a difficult word. We're talking about wireless stuff. Right. Right. But I can't I can't remember the last time that it's just kind of bombed and I've had to go to a backup plan. In fact, I don't know if it's ever happened, but I've had to just give up and go to a backup plan. And I do think that technology has definitely improved over the last several years. Absolutely. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by the Omni Group, makers of tools as powerful as you. One of my very favorite tools is made by the Omni Group. It's called OmniGraffle, and it's a diagramming tool made for the rest of us. With OmniGraffle, you can communicate and organize ideas visually and beautifully. The science is out there. People don't just learn ideas by hearing and reading words. They need to see them visually. And a tool that helps you create visual ideas is a very powerful tool indeed. I use OmniGraffle all the time, whether I'm making legal briefs or diagrams for a Max Parkey field guide. The thing I love about OmniGraffle is that it's super easy to use, but the results look very professional. They've got things like snapping and automatic shapes that allow you to make really good-looking diagrams in almost no time at all. When you move objects around on an OmniGraffle canvas, they automatically snap in place. All of the covers for all of the Max Barkey field guides are an OmniGraffle file. And there are entire libraries of pre-built shapes that you can copy into your OmniGraffle that make you look even better. Often people see an OmniGraffle that I've built and they ask who my graphics person is or who I hired to do this, and I have to tell them I just did it with OmniGraffle. The iPad version is awesome. I've made many beautiful diagrams right on my iPad. But don't take my word for it. Head over to theomnigroup.com. You can download a 14-day free trial to get an idea how the application works. You're going to be surprised how easy it is. Once you start putting these beautiful diagrams in your documents and presentations, it's going to totally change your game. So once again, that's omnigroup.com, and you can get that 14-day free trial. Check it out now. Thank you, Omnigroup, for all of your support of the Mac Power users. Hey, before the break, uh, you had talked a bit about GoodNotes. I wanted to go a little deeper on GoodNotes. There's there's a lot of apps out there, um, but one of the things you had mentioned that I think a lot of people don't realize is that GoodNotes has the ability to make these templates. Now, are you, I believe if memory serves, will they have a music staff template built into the app? Is that right? They do have a music staff template built into the app. Some of the built-in templates have changed, moving from GoodNotes Four to good notes five and yeah. so um i i think one of the ones that they got rid of is the landscape staff paper template and so i had to kind of create my own landscape staff paper template for a letter size page and the reason i use landscape is because i am teaching with a projector that is obviously a lens in landscape orientation yeah. and so for for a lot of documents i prefer to have my iPad in portrait because that's what most documents are in. But for my whiteboard notebook, that's in landscape because that's what the projector is like. And so I've created that. And then for my for my private lessons, which we haven't really talked about yet, I have a uh, a private lesson notebook template that I have created that that kind of maps to the the things that I want to make sure that I do in the course of a semester and in the course of a uh, an individual composition lesson. 
So composition lessons are weird and kind of hand wavy a lot of the times. Uh, you want to give students enough flexibility that they can be really kind of open-ended and creative and you still want to be able to hold them accountable for doing good thoughtful thorough work all the time and it's hard to know i don't claim to have that figured out i'm not sure anybody really does but uh one of the things that i like to do is write down in a notebook all the major concepts that we talk about in a, a lesson and then exactly what I expect them to do for the next lesson when we meet the following week. And so I have put together a good notes template that is my my lesson notebook template. At the top, it has a place for me to put the date and the week number that we're on for a 15 or 16 week semester. And then there's a whole bunch of blank staves, much like I would have on a sheet of staff paper. So that if I want to, you know, suggest a harmony or suggest some motivic transformation like if i want to make a suggestion for how to write something i can do that there if i want to take a screenshot from their score and put it in there i can do that and then at the bottom of the page there's a place for me to give them a grade because you know it's kind of dumb but i still have to give them a grade uh for every lesson that they come in for because that's what we're here for and then next to that i have a space where i can write what I want them to write for next week. So I might say, write, you know, three different versions of this transition or uh, do this counterpoint exercise, write a short canon that uses this idea that you're working with here, whatever it is, I can write that there. Uh, and then also what I want them to listen to, because I also want them to always be listening to music. And so I'll write, you know, listen to this particular Barrio Sequenza or this, you know, whatever Sonata that's similar or useful to what they're working on. And then also every time I do that, I will put a recording of whatever that is on a Spotify playlist that I share with that student directly. And that's not unlike I have a good notes meeting template at the bottom. It says action items, just like you have uh, with exactly. the study for next week. Um, so uh, share with that because a lot of people don't realize how you make those templates. Could you talk through how you made yours? So I'm a, total nerd and i go into more uh probably precision than i i really need to and go into more power tools than i really need to but i had originally made them in adobe illustrator i have been doing more and more stuff in affinity apps and so the last set of updates that i made to them i moved them over to affinity stuff and actually the latest uh affinity publisher is really really nice um and so i've been doing more stuff like that i try as much as possible to make them look and feel like the built-in good notes notebooks so i started by exporting a blank staff paper page from the the built-in staff paper template from GoodNotes into a PDF in, and I brought that into Adobe Illustrator or whatever else you want to use and so I used the same colors and I used the same line thicknesses and things like that um, and so I essentially just made a PDF and um, I have a version of it that's a single page for my ongoing students so my students that study with me outside of the university they don't get a grade for every one of their lessons. They just come in every week and there's not kind of a finite end to the term that they're studying with me, right? They just come in every week and every week and every week and every week. And so that is just a single page. And then kind of like I was saying before, 
when we're done with one lesson, I just swipe to go to the next page and it creates a new blank page of the same thing. For my students who are studying with me for a finite 15 or 16 weeks, depending on the length of the semester, I will just make a long PDF file that has exactly the right number of those in it. And all the the weeks are numbered already in there. Um, And then for those, I also include a couple of extra pages. So I include a page for the beginning of the semester for them to kind of think about what their goals are for the semester, because I want them to get in the habit of planning their projects and planning their time and 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 organizing those kinds of things because when you're you know doing open-ended creativity it's up to you to make those kinds of choices and I want them to get in the habit of doing it and so the first thing we do every semester is just plan and the first lesson is just talking through some things and I make some very broad notes in a page that's different from all the other ones and then the next lesson is their first like regular lesson meeting where we're down and dirty in the in the weeds um, and then those lesson pages look basically the same as my private lesson pages. So those are kind of two different things. One is just a single page of the notebook that I add to every time I swipe for the next page. And then the other one is kind of a fixed 16-ish page PDF document that I import into GoodNotes every time I start a new student. So and then just I would assume every student gets their own notebook? Every student gets their own separate notebook. And every student also has their own Uh, folder in Dropbox. So when I was a composition student, um, every week, if I was working on paper, I'd bring in what I had on paper. But uh, when I eventually moved into the computer at the time, my my primary composing application was Sibelius. And uh, I would every week have to print off the entire score that I was working on. And nearing the end of a project like this, that score could be 20, 30, 40 pages or more. And uh, during the course of working on it, I'm not always adding things to the end. Sometimes I'm adding things to the beginning or tweaking things in the middle. And so every week I would have to print off 30 to 40 pages or something like that and use it for just the you know hour, hour and a half that I was in a lesson with my teacher. And then afterwards, immediately put that in the recycle bin. And it was it's super, super wasteful, but it was the only way to do the things that we needed to do at the time. And so for my students, they don't do that anymore, thankfully. They uh, can use whatever application they want. They can pick from any of the three major professional uh, music notation applications. And when they're ready for their lesson, they just export a PDF file and uh, an audio file, put those in their shared Dropbox folder. They each have a shared Dropbox folder with me. And that's what I open up. I open those up in um, PDF Expert on the iPad. But that's what we look at. And that's what I mark up in their lessons. And then uh, I take notes in their notebook. And then I do a similar kind of hack with the lesson notebooks that I did with the uh, class whiteboards, except with this one added thing, which I don't really need to do, but it makes me happy that I can do it, is I have a Hazel rule that looks at my uh, my Dropbox backup folder for GoodNotes. And anytime one of my lesson notebooks gets updated, it gets copied over to that individual student's shared Dropbox folder. So everything for them is in that one Dropbox folder, stuff that I've put there and stuff that they've put there. Um, 
And so each each student obviously has their own separate folder for that. But um, that's a really nice way for us to exchange ideas. If there's a chapter or something that I want them to read, I can put it in their Dropbox folder. If there's a score of mine or someone else's that I want to share with them to study, um, I can put those in there. Um, if there's you know a- any audio that I want them to listen to, I can put those in that shared Dropbox folder. And so that's a really good way for us to work together. And it's a it's a point where I can also add their lesson notebook from GoodNotes. Wow, that that's really impressive. So you make a separate Hazel rule for every new student, presumably. Yes. And the students have access to everything, your notes, their materials, and whatever additional materials you put out. But that, and are you... Uh, how many teachers are doing this much work for their students? I, uh, this is really impressive. Well, to be fair, uh, when you are teaching one-on-one lessons, you don't have quite as many students as when you are teaching big lectures. Yeah. So um, uh, a, a full studio is maybe 15 or 20 students. And uh, that's if you're only teaching private lessons. Um, some people in a really busy studio might have 25 or 30 if they're only teaching private lessons and that's all they do for the whole semester. Then I teach lessons and classroom teaching. And so I usually only have three to five students at a time, uh, like this. And once I've established the lesson notebook thing, they are studying with me usually for at least four semesters and maybe more. Uh, and so I set it up once and as long as their last name stays the same and their, uh, lesson folder stays the same, I only have to set it up once. So I don't, I'm not even setting it up at the beginning of every semester. Yeah. So it's, it's not, it's not as much work as it might seem. And it's a little bit of work at the beginning of the semester. And I don't even think about it the rest of the year. Yeah. That's the beauty of automation. Exactly. The um, I, good, good, see, good catch. Um, the uh, one thing I know with this whole discussion is the only time I heard you mention a Mac is setting up a Hazel rule. How much of your work done in your teaching workflow is iPad versus Mac? That's a really good question. So in my teaching workflow, there are a couple of crucial points where I need to use a Mac, but most things are done on the iPad. So that Hazel rule is one of those things that needs to be done on the Mac. Any interactions that I have with our learning management system, which is Blackboard, I need to do on the Mac. It does not work on the iPad, even with the new uh, fancy desktop class Safari, does not does not work uh, with Blackboard. And to be fair, if any people are listening that use Blackboard, we're on a slightly older version of Blackboard, uh, not the latest version. Uh, I think the latest version probably works a little bit better with mobile devices, but I've never tried it. Um, so... Those are two things so far is uh, Hazel and uh, Blackboard. And then related to that is when my students who are in my theory classes submit homework assignments, they do everything by hand from a workbook or from things that I hand out to them on paper in class. But I ask them to submit them on Blackboard by using an app on their phone to scan and upload that to Blackboard so that I don't have to keep track of their assignments on paper after they're done with them. And so um, they do everything uh, by hand on paper. 
and upload it to Blackboard as a PDF. And I've got a, a document that I give them at the beginning of the semester on Blackboard that says, you know, here's how to do this. Here's some apps that you can try for iOS or Android. And uh, they, you know, sometimes it takes like a couple of rounds, but, you know, after the first or second time through, everything's pretty much fine. Um, but then I have to download all of those from Blackboard. And there's a lot of dumb things that happens with Blackboard uh, at that point. First of all, uh, I download them and they have insane file names that have nothing to do with the name that the students give the file <laughs> or who they are or anything like that. So hopefully they've done something in there to, to you know, indicate to me who they are. There's a very little bit that happens in the uh, file naming that gives their student ID somewhere in the file naming. And so I use this amazing app in uh, the set app subscription service called Renamer. And Renamer has uh, a lot of different what it calls renamerlets that you can string together to rename files. And one of them, the one that I use most often, is a regular expression uh, processor. And uh, if, if you're not familiar with regular expressions, they're super nerdy, even nerdier than they're probably the most nerdy thing that I've mentioned so far today, and that's saying something. <laughs> uh, and uh, they are a great way to just like mess with text. And so I have a regular expression that does a few different things to the file names that I download from the learning management system. And one of the things that it does is it moves their user ID uh, or their their, their university ID to the front of the file name, followed immediately by the name of the file as they gave it. And then uh, that allows me to see who they are at least uh, a little bit. And then another thing that it does is it removes all of the spaces from the file name because when I upload, so I mark them up in PDF expert. So uh, I do this on the Mac, save it to a Dropbox folder, open them in PDF expert. That lets me use different colors. And I have stickers that I've kind of ripped out of iMessage sticker packs and some other things that I've created on my own for like common errors that I can stick in there. And then uh, I have their marked up PDF files and then I upload those back. And the problem is if there are any spaces in the file name, uh, Blackboard kind of barfs when the student tries to look at them. It, it says that they don't have permission to view the file. And it's not actually that they don't have permission. It's that Blackboard screws up some kind of permission check when the file name has a space in it anywhere, even though it has spaces in it when you download it from Blackboard. So uh, I solve all of those problems with Renamer. Uh, and uh, so anyway, that's those are the two points, really three points where I use a Mac in my teaching workflow. Pretty much everything else I do on the iPad. Yeah, we did a whole show on automators on regular expressions. And it is something that I think is terrifying to people who've never tried it. But actually, the basics are not that hard. So I'd recommend going listen to that episode if you're interested in it. And man, I second the nomination renamer. When you said it, I... I, if you had a camera on me, you'd see me grinning because I just really find that app solves so many little problems for me. If I were like one or two degrees nerdier, I would just do this with shell scripts or Ruby scripts or Python scripts or something, but I'm not. I, and so I need this like graphical front end to the regular expression system. And I'll say if, if you're listening to this and you've never tried a regular expression, when you first look at them, they look 
terrifying. They are not as terrifying as they look. And they are even terrifying and confusing to programmers. There's like a joke among programmers that regular expressions are a write-only language because even the people that write them 30 minutes later can't decipher them. Just don't worry about how freaky they look. Just do some really simple things and they are truly like a superpower of automation. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that I, I want to get into on this show at some point, but it's very hard to talk about them because it would know, be basically impossible, I think. Yeah. I mean, you guys are good at talking about a lot of things that are impossible to talk through. That might be the greatest challenge yet. Mm-hmm. I think it may be. Uh, we just say percentage sign backslash, not forward slash. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be a very compelling podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's cool. I'm glad that you're you've got that sorted out. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by FreshBooks. If you're a freelancer, you can save 192 hours with FreshBooks super simple cloud accounting software. By simplifying tasks like invoicing and collecting online, all that stuff that goes along with bookkeeping, FreshBooks has just drastically reduced the time it takes for 10 million people to deal with their paperwork, and that includes me. FreshBooks can automate late payment email reminders so you can spend less time chasing payments and more time working your magic. And when you email a client an invoice, FreshBooks keeps up with whether they've seen it or not, which puts an end to the guessing games. If you're listening to this and you're a freelancer and you have not checked out FreshBooks yet, now is the time. They are offering an unrestricted 30-day free trial for listeners of the show. There's no credit card required. All you have to do is is go to freshbooks.com slash MPU and enter Mac Power Users in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Once again, that's freshbooks.com slash MPU for an unrestricted 30-day free trial. I'd like to thank FreshBooks for the support of this show and Relay FM. So, Dr. David, I want to get to the other gig you've got, and that's uh, scoring games. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a new thing for me. I've done it exactly once, so I'm not sure I'd call it a gig that I've got. But uh, if you want to talk about writing music, we can we can talk about that more maybe broadly. But yeah. we can start with the games thing for sure. Yeah. So I am, as I mentioned earlier, formally trained, classically trained uh, as a composer. And when I was in school, it was if you said that you wanted to write film music or game music, which to be fair, most 18-year-old kids that I meet that say they want to be composition majors, that's what they want to do, right? They grew up listening to, uh, you know, orchestral music in big Hollywood film scores. They grew up listening to, you know, Alan Silvestri or John Williams, or they grew up listening to uh, game music, playing all kinds of whatever their favorite games are, um, you know, Michael Giacchino or, or what have you. And they really don't even know or care that much about the kind of music that I spent my whole college career and since then studying and making, which is totally fine. I I don't begrudge them that at all. There's a lot of different stuff, though, when you are making that kind of music versus the kind of music that I grew up making. And the biggest difference is a lot of that kind of music today, especially, is not made by live humans in a recording studio. So if you are a fancy lad like John Williams or Alan Silvestri, you can basically write whatever you want and somebody else will pay a boatload of money to get 
very skilled professionals into a very expensive room and everyone involved's time is extremely expensive and they will make a really amazing recording for you. But for us mortals, uh, we have to fake it. And so um, a lot of this is done. And this is why the Mac Pro with the thousand logic tracks is amazing with um, what are called uh, sample libraries. And so this was really working on this project for this game was the first time that I had ever worked directly into a digital audio workstation like Logic. I am always used to working on paper and working with uh, staff notation. And this is the first project that I've ever really done that really only ever existed in the form of uh, a recording in Logic. And so these are done with sample libraries, which are, it's hard to explain what these are, but they're, they're, they're like a giant set of teeny, 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 tiny, very high quality audio recordings. So what they'll do is they will hire a highly skilled professional, say violinist, to sit in a room and play the lowest note on the violin very soft. And they'll record it. And they'll record them doing it very short. And then they'll do it slightly louder and then slightly louder and slightly louder and slightly louder. And then they'll go up to the next note and they'll do the same thing. And they'll record, you know, six different volumes at every every possible way they could. So yeah, they'll the, do it the both. Attack, they'll change the attack and they'll change the volume and the length as well. Yeah, and so then they have different lengths and different, so bowed and plucked and all kinds of stuff like that. And they'll have this huge collection of thousands of these teeny tiny wave files that then another computer program will decide to string them together and dovetail them in such a way that it sounds like a person was actually playing that music. And so that's what I was using to make this music for the game. Um, and so I was kind of working on uh, uh, this project for the first time, learning all these tools as I went, because I, like I said, I see all these students who come in and they say, I want to write for video games. And I would say, that sounds like fun. I don't know anything about how to do that. <laughs> and so one summer I decided, you know what? I need to be a better mentor for my students who want to do this. It doesn't matter that it's not what I want to do. It's what they want to do that matters when I'm teaching them a creative endeavor like this. And so I went online and I went to Reddit and some other forums and I said, hey, I write weird art music. And if you are writing a weird artsy game and you would like some creative music to put into your game, I would love to work with you on that project. And I got uh, one response from one developer. And uh, that is the project that we're talking about. So I corresponded with them a few times. I did kind of a little demo uh, for them. They had uploaded some uh, gameplay footage to Twitter with I, and then I downloaded it completely on my own and scored it kind of like a film, like fixed media, and sent it back to them. And they said, yeah, that sounds good. Let's work on this. Um, so that's how I got involved in the project. And I've kind of been learning all of this stuff as I go using logic and sample libraries. And it has been quite a ride. It has led to, in part, uh, my current gig in Wichita. And uh, this class that I'm teaching in film and game music that I mentioned earlier has kind of come out of that uh, experience. And um, if you're listening to this now and you want to try this stuff, now's a really great time when everybody is stuck 
at home to learn some of these new things. And a lot of the uh, pro software publishers are discounting or giving really extended free trials for some of their stuff. So Apple's running a 90-day free trial for Logic and for Final Cut Pro. Um, Even if you've already done the trial before, you can get this 90-day trial. And uh, if you have anybody in your life that has uh, an EDU uh, uh, email address, you should definitely take advantage of this thing. It's not super highly publicized. It is called the Apple Pro Apps for Education Bundle, and you can Google that. Um, the Apple Pro Apps for Education Bundle is sold not through the App Store, but through the Apple Store. And you buy it, the verification is done manually, so don't expect to be able to like buy it and immediately start using the software. But once you're verified as eligible, um, you get like download codes for the Mac app store, like a, like a, a, a voucher basically. And what it is, is all five of Apple's professional media apps for 200 bucks, which is the cost of logic by itself. Um, so you get logic pro 10, you get final cut pro 10, uh, or is it X? I don't know. Um, you get main stage. Nobody knows. <laughs> Nobody knows anything. You get main stage and compressor and motion. So all five of those things, uh, and if you don't know what any of those last three are, neither does anybody else. You don't need them. Uh, but the first two are obviously like kind of best in class uh, professional media apps. And if you want to play around with them, this is a great time to to try. Yeah, I when we were at um, WWDC last year, we went into the Mac Pro room. You know, they had like a display of Mac Pros. But when they had announced it. They had a room in there where it was the guy who had done the music score for How to Train Your Dragon 2. I guess it was the sequel. And he was running the whole score with the dialogue and all the other audio off a Mac Pro. And I said, well, how did this change with this new Mac Pro? And he says, well, before I had this on, I think he said four different computers. I don't remember. It It was a lot of computers. Like he had one for the strings and one for the horns. And now he could put it all on one computer. It, 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 people don't realize how much of a data hog that process you'd explain is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, my iMac that I have at home, it's one of the reasons that my iMac I have at home has 64 gigs of RAM uh, is because I wanted to be able to do those kinds of things. And it's one of the reasons why I've got a handful of external SSDs dangling off the back of my iMac uh, very inelegantly, uh, and uh, I know I'm sure David can appreciate um, that. Uh, but it's it's because I have about a terabyte and a half full of you know tiny wave files that all create an orchestra. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I totally understand. And I like I said, I've not not done a ton of media music professionally. Uh, I've just done a few small projects here and there. But the friends that I have that are in that world definitely uh, are using multiple computers. Now, having said that, I don't know if any of them are at the level where they can just you know swing for the fences and pick up one of these new Mac Pros anytime soon. I think they're probably still going to stick with their uh, you know network of of computers performing different sections of the orchestra. But it's really cool to know that it would be possible, given an infinite budget and an, uh, an infinite you know everything else to have all of that stuff running on one giant bad mamma jamma computer. Well, the fact that it exists means it's probably coming to you at some point, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. it, it'll get down in your price range eventually. And, I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. 
but they but that SSD for you is critical because you need that real fast access if you're going to be pulling those files in. Yes. Now, when you did the when you did the game for possessions, did did you render the score from your iMac? I mostly was rendering things from the iMac, and it's still very fast, and you can still do the scale of the things that I was doing in real time. Yeah. So I I was not doing anything like I don't need to for the kind of it would be silly for a tiny little phone game to have like the sound of a 120 person Hollywood film orchestra, right? That would <laughs> yeah. that would seem weird if you were playing that game and that was the sound that was coming out of your phone. It'd be um, kind of awesome too, let's be honest. <laughs> it would be kind of awesome. There's actually one track on there where um so the 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 story ish in as much as there is a story of the game is that you're you're putting together uh the rooms in these different uh people's houses and mm-hmm. the the houses get fancier and fancier as you go and it's a, it's a little bit like um kind of an MC Escher try to make things appear as though they're in the right place but not actually be in the right place kind of thing it's hard to describe it's a very visual puzzle game um and in one of the later levels you're in this fancy person's home theater home movie theater kind of thing and for that one i felt like it was appropriate for me to a little bit i didn't go quite whole hog but i went a little bit in the direction of having something like an orchestral film score for that one level nice yeah you know we've we've been talking for a while one thing we haven't talked about which i think would be interesting for a lot of listeners that are interested in composition is all these great music composition apps out there you said your students can use whichever of the three big ones what are the ones you use so the ones that I use for music notation are, uh, Sib- I mentioned Sibelius earlier, and I am using Sibelius Ultimate, which is the, the top level one. And I have been using Sibelius pretty much since it was available on Mac and Windows. It was originally, this is like, a, the, the story of Sibelius is weird. It was originally only available on the Acorn computer. Uh, which was very popular and distributed to schools by like the BBC or something yeah, like that yeah. in the UK. Um, and so it, were, it was originally developed just for the Acorn computer in version one and then version like 1.1 or 1.2 or something like that. It finally moved to Mac and Windows-ish type platforms. And that's around the time that I started using it. So I've been using Sibelius for around 20 years. I feel like I can make it do pretty much anything that it is capable of doing and then some. And I've done some really weird stuff in Sibelius. I know all the workarounds and all the weird hacks and all the weird plugins, and I, I feel really comfortable there. Sibelius has uh, done some weird things in the last few years in the course of being bought by Avid. It used to be an independent company. Um, it was bought by Avid, who also makes Pro Tools and uh, Avid Media Composer, and is gone really hard in the subscription direction and um just i've been gradually i'm not opposed to subscriptions i actually kind of like software subscriptions which is maybe another thing for another time but the direction that they went is not really sitting great with me and so i've been slowly picking up a newer app one of the things that they did when they bought it is a few years after they bought it they fired the entire development team Uh, because they wanted to move their whole development from London, where this company was founded, to LA, where everybody else who works at Avid works. And none of those people wanted to move to LA from London. Uh, Then, like within a a week, Steinberg, who makes Cubase, said, hey, there's a bunch of -of out-of-work 
people who have a lot of experience working in music notation software, and we don't have any music notation software. And so they basically hired as many of those former Sibelius employees as they could. Clever. And spent like three years developing it. And over the last probably three or four years now that it's been available, and they were working for three to four years before that without having it be available, um, there's been a new app in this space called Dorico. And uh, so I have been shifting more and more of my work to Dorico as it gets more features that I need. There's more stuff that I can do there. And I really like the the way its final product looks. It's a lot more thoughtfully designed. Obviously, it doesn't have the kind of technical feature debt stuff that Sibelius has. And then the other one that I uh, have not used really significantly ever, but is the other, the third pro option is Finale from Make Music. I'll add that if you're curious about any of these, they all have free trials and they all have kind of different levels. So you can, there's like an entry level one, the entry level Dorico and the entry level Sibelius are both free. Um, and then there's like a middle tier and then a pro tier. So those are great. They're very expensive. I will warn you, they are like, if you're not used to looking at this kind of software, they're eye-wateringly expensive. They're about 600 bucks to buy. Um, so if that's not, the thing that you're ready for start with those those uh, entry level ones or i will say i don't once my students are composition majors i tell them they need to invest in one of these professional tools which by the way if you are in education you get a significant like 50 percent or more discount on these applications but if you're not ready for one of those or if you're not like committing to this as a career and you just want to play around with it there are uh less expensive options um, the most common one and the one that is the closest to something that I would recommend and the one that my students who aren't composition majors are often familiar with is called MuseScore, which is uh, an open source uh, application for music notation. I think it's uh, a little bit harder to use in some ways. In some ways, it's easier to use. Uh, I don't think the uh, output from it looks quite as good as the output from the pro apps, but it's getting better all the time um, and it's not awful right i've paid money for things that don't work as well as this open source thing so um you know uh that's not like a ringing endorsement but i think it's really good for the price which is free so if you're if you're just getting started and you just want to play around with something you can download MuseScore for your mac and i'll say also if you're just getting started as well there are some totally reasonable ipad apps they're not anything that i would use for my music but i have very special very specific very nerdy art weird needs and so um their symphony pro 5 is a pretty good one it's a little long in the tooth has been updated recently notion is is one that's pretty okay and there's been a new one just a couple of months ago now uh, as we're recording this called staff pad that was on it was a windows only app for years and it came out right around the time of the surface and the surface pen and it wasn't on the iPad because that was before the iPad had the fancy active stylus. And because they were uh, a pen-heavy app that was such uh, an impressive demo, you can hand-write music and it recognizes it and converts it into beautiful computer-engraved music. And it plays it back for you. And it's really impressive. It's like a really snazzy demo. It became a really important tentpole demo for Microsoft events for a couple of years. Um, and so because of all that, it was 
Windows exclusive until February of this year, I think. Hmm. Um, and it came out on iPad. Now it is again maybe the most expensive iPad app you've you've taken a look at recently. It's ninety bucks uh, U.S. to get into, um, and it has uh, in-app purchases that are up to a hundred dollars for different sample libraries. So it is it is not cheap, and unfortunately, because the App Store is weird and dumb. Uh, you can't demo it. You can't take it for a free trial because um, there's no free trials in the App Store. Um, so, you know, it's it's really a very cool app, though. It's not perfect. I actually wrote a, a pretty extensive review of it at Scoring Notes um, if you're curious to see what its strengths and weaknesses are and if it would work for you. It's got a lot of very cool features uh, and it is, I would say, if you're wanting to do this on an iPad, it's probably your best option. But uh, I think if you want something free, the best thing is MuseScore uh, on on the Mac. Yeah, I, I would second Notion because I am um, I, I write my solos out. You know, I, I play uh, jazz standards all the time, and I like to. Yeah, I'm just my. I'm not good enough to just sit here and look at chord changes and you know pull off a Dexter Gordon. So I I will write solos quite often. I tried Notion and it, it's easy enough to understand and it's not that expensive to get into. And it does that thing where you write the music and then it plays it back for you, but it never swings. Like if you like jazz, it doesn't sound right. And uh, I gave up on it. Even I just write mm-hmm. my solos in good notes. I just use the music stop paper. I, it, it doesn't preview it for me or anything, but it's good enough. I, I write them with my horn in my hands anyway. Yeah. Now, if someone is looking to to get into one of these, like you said, these are expensive applications. Is there a common file format between these where you could export something? You know, say you started with with MuseScore and then want to upgrade to something else, or are you sort of locked into these different applications? Uh yes and no. Uh, there <laughs> there is there is a common file format. It is called Music XML. It is a file format that exists. It does not uh, represent everything that you could possibly have in a score. Um, it is like Bluetooth going to be really good next year. Um, and it is uh, not something that I would rely on. You would not, for example, be able to export something from one and import it into another and have it look like what you expect you would probably mostly have all of the notes and rhythms in the right place, but any text might be missing or somewhere else. It's be, and it's because there's not, there's just a lot of variables that are not accounted for and not stored in the music XML file. And some of these applications actually knowing that will just ignore certain declarations in the music xml file because they know that it's going to make them look bad uh so i would say if that's something that you're wanting to do the one that is the best at music xml import is dorico because it is by far the most recent player on the scene and they want it to be very easy for people to get into their platform um and also when they were developing it they developed the kind of layout engine first and so they were always creating the music in another application and importing it because they were only working on the layout. They hadn't started any of the user interface stuff yet. Um, and so its uh, rendering of music XML files is probably the best of all of them. Um, having said that, if I am 
transmitting music digitally to somebody else, I am always just sending them a PDF file. Yeah, I kind of figured that was where it ended up was a PDF because honestly, that is the end game for almost all file formats. (laughs) But I was thinking if I worked on this piece two years ago and I want to go back and touch it up, then... Am I, am I stuck if I've changed applications? So it sounds like you just got to kind of understand. Yes. Yeah. You are stuck. <laughs> you are stuck. So you want to make a good a decision. I mean, I, I my dissertation is in Sibelius. I'm never going to not have a Sibelius subscription. They've got me for life. Well, I guess that's good for them, right? Yeah. <laughs> that, I know. Like, it's a lock in. <laughs> a happy note. Well, it sounds to me, though, like there are options up and down the gamut, and you don't have to start with the most expensive or fancy one. And even like I was just saying earlier, I don't even, I guess I don't, I'm not nearly at your level or your students level, but there's nothing wrong with just writing the music on staff paper too. No, not at all. And, and, and like I said, I've, I have all my students do everything with paper and pencil. I have, I have some staff paper. I, I really love the, uh, the Carta brand of, of staff paper from Hal Leonard. I have this, this beautiful, uh, Promethea mechanical pencil that I, that I enjoy. And, um, uh, so I, I really, you know, get into that and having nice tools helps me to be motivated to do it because, you know, I, I like I like writing music, but it's hard. It's a chore sometimes. Um, and so like having that little bit of incentive to to get in and just slog through it is good. I will say, David, for the kind of stuff that you're doing, if you're just like writing out a, a, a solo for a Dexter Gordon tune. Uh, if you haven't tried it before, try the free level of Sibelius or Dorico because they can do probably everything that you're doing in those on your Mac. It's not handwriting though; it's the the thing that you're that you're going to lose. Yeah, I should, I should. I, I just want to hear back. It definitely the stuff I've been using is the low end stuff, and it sounds like a robot is playing a Dexter Gordon solo, which is not what I'm looking for. It is going to be a robot. Um, I will say that. I don't know if Notion can do this. I would be surprised if it couldn't swing playback or or do something vaguely resembling swing in playback. I know Sibelius and Dorico can both do swing playback, yeah. such as any robot can. Yeah, and it's also just, I mean, I'm, I'm going off the uh, reservation here, but it's just, it's also just the articulation. I feel like there's a jazz articulation that I don't want to notate it, but I know yep. it when I hear it. I don't know, something like that. Um. Anyway, it sounds like there are options out there. One last question on the software end of music. I know there's listeners out there that are making music with GarageBand, and uh, you haven't mentioned that app in the show. I'm wondering what's your experience with it, and if there's an, somebody out there who's a happy amateur, you know, at what point do you think they need to leave something like GarageBand and go to these more advanced tools? I think you can keep using GarageBand until you can't figure out the next thing to do. I, to be honest with you, I don't actually have a ton of experience with GarageBand because I didn't move to the Mac until I was kind of trying to do things that were beyond the level of GarageBand. Sure, you're already a pro when you got so there. So the the first like like I had already like been digging around Pro Tools by the time I had got my first Mac, um, but. Uh, I do uh, play around in GarageBand all the time. If I am in class and I need to um, just pull up something that's going to make some sound, a lot of times I'll do that in GarageBand because I know it's fast and I can get into it right away. Um, I actually have a student right now who is uh, blind. And so we're doing an experiment right now. I haven't haven't actually seen it yet. 
Um, but they can use uh, GarageBand because the accessibility features are there. The accessibility features are not there in any of those notation apps that I mentioned before for them to to see uh, what's going on in a score or interact with it in a meaningful way. But they grew up playing around in GarageBand. And so we're trying to think uh, where they're going to do their homework assignments for me for like, you know, nerdy classical music class in GarageBand. Um, and so that's like one thing that, it, we, and we we all know this, that Apple's really good at accessibility. And it's kind of amazing how accessible uh, a tool like GarageBand is, because it really is pretty complex and pretty powerful. It can do a lot of stuff. I don't, I wouldn't say that there's like a particular point at which you need to move out of GarageBand. It just does different things differently. Yeah, I'm actually surprised that Logic doesn't have a similar level of uh, friendliness towards people with disabilities. The because um, that's such a big deal at Apple. I'm surprised it hasn't made its way up to Logic. I don't know. I it, it do, if if it does, it would be a surprise to me. I'm just less familiar with it. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by One Password, the application that lets you forget all your passwords because One Password remembers them for you. Head over to onepassword.com/mpu in all caps to get twenty percent off. So there's a lot more remote working going on these days than there has been in the past, which means your online accounts are more important to you than ever. So why trust them to the same password across all those websites? We all know we've fallen into that trap. 1Password allows you to avoid that. With 1Password, you create strong, unique passwords that you can use at every website that you visit. That way, if the bad guys get your password at your iTunes account, they don't also get your password to your bank. 1Password takes care of all the work for you. It creates strong passwords, and all you have to remember is your single 1Password to get in. If you've got an iPhone, it works with Face ID and Touch ID. It's just awesome. I'm also a big fan of their Safari plugin, so when I'm on a website with Safari, I can just hit the little plugin, create a new password, or go fetch a password for the website I'm currently at. In this day and age, you really need to take your online security seriously, and with a team like 1Password at your back, it's just so much easier. With 1Password for families, you can get up to five family members on a single account, and you have a bunch of sharing options between you. If you suddenly find your home with a bunch of your family members, this is a great time to set up 1Password for families and get everybody trained up on it. But whether you need it for yourself your family or your team, 1Password is there to protect you. Just go to onepassword.com slash MPU to get that 20% discount off your family plan and let them know you heard about it here on the Mac Power Users. Thank you, 1Password, for all of your support of the Mac Power Users. So one thing we like to do here at the end of our interview shows is talk about some favorites app, favorite apps and services that maybe haven't made it into the conversation. So, Dr. David, what is on your list? Yeah, so I've got a few different things. Uh, first of all, the Affinity apps. I mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, Affinity Photo, Designer, and Publisher are alternatives to Adobe Creative Cloud. Now, I've, I've used Adobe Creative Cloud apps for years and years, and I still mm -hmm. do use them. I still do have a Creative Cloud subscription. I do a lot of, I do all my video editing when I need to edit videos of concerts or lessons or whatever, doing a lot of video stuff now that I'm having to teach online. I do all that in Premiere. I love Premiere. But if you are not using a, 
Adobe stuff for a lot of other things, and you just kind of occasionally need to tweak some images or some documents or something, uh, the Affinity collection of apps for Mac and iPad are amazing. I don't know how long this sale is going to last, but they're all currently 50% off, which means that they're on the Mac, a $25 one-time payment to get something that is pretty darn close to a drop-in replacement for Photoshop or Illustrator or InDesign is pretty good. And I, I know I had, I need to manipulate PDFs quite a bit um, to work on my scores sometimes. Um, and there some, there's a lot of great things you can do in preview, but there's, there's some things that you, you, you can't. And Affinity Publisher just got a big update that makes it a lot more useful for me for those kinds of things. It, they're they're just super powerful. There's a lot of cool things that they can do because they're new and modern that the uh, old clunky Adobe apps can't do. I'm, I just really love these things. 25 bucks for an Affinity app is a great deal. It is it is a steal. Is I mean, it's a steal when they're full price for 50 bucks. Yeah. Yeah, they are a uh, a set of apps, I think, doesn't quite get the attention they deserve, but if you if you really think about it, they've taken on Adobe in a way that is just really surprising, especially on the iPad. Like Adobe had such an opportunity, and they left the door open, and Affinity just walked through it with some amazing products. Yeah, they're they're really very very powerful. So the the next uh, pick app, whatever you want to call it that I have, is um, a way that I have for listening to music that is not on streaming services. So I mentioned earlier that I use Spotify. That's my primary streaming service. But uh, I listen to a lot of things that are not on Spotify. And the way I do that is through Plex. And I know a lot of people are rolling their eyes and hearing about Plex uh, from everybody talking about their illegally downloaded videos and whatnot. I use Plex. I do have some some video stuff in Plex, but most of what I have in Plex is music. And I think it's a really good way to organize a music library that I can sync wirelessly to my mobile devices and have offline. It will let me use some different audio formats that iTunes and, and Apple Music are less comfortable with. I can use FLAC. Uh, audio files for those. So that's a, a lossless audio codec um, that I can use for audio files. And a lot of those audio files I get from Bandcamp. So Bandcamp is a really cool website and service for musicians and small record labels to sell their music directly and develop a, a more direct relationship with the people that are listening to their music, which is really great for musicians, especially in these times when musicians are, are I know a lot of people are suffering it's hard to say that one group is suffering more than others but musicians can't gig right now so people who have their you know we always say nobody's making any music from uh records anymore and so they just got a gig and sell merch well they can't gig right now um so uh it's a really tough time for musicians so if you can buy your musicians music to support them one of the best places that you can do that that will be the most supportive of them is on Bandcamp. There's a lot of really cool features of Bandcamp. One of them is that when you buy music on Bandcamp, you can usually download that music in a bunch of different formats. So if you have a near infinite amount of storage, as many of us do these days, um, and you want to listen to the highest possible quality of music, you can download lossless music files from Bandcamp 
or you can choose if you if space is a premium for you if you want to make sure that you've got room on your phone through whatever storage system you use or you're running out of iCloud space or whatever you can pick the uh, more compressed mp3 formats and so I really like Bandcamp for this stuff and there's a bunch of stuff that I I, I really love listening to um, that's you know my strange concert music jazz that I really dig rock that I really dig whatever is on there uh, a lot of times it's stuff that's not on any other streaming services and so I would uh, really encourage anybody who is looking for something new and clever and creative to listen to and wants to support their favorite musicians uh, during these these challenging times Bandcamp is a really good place to start and Plex is a really good way to organize the music that you're getting from there there, there are Plex lovers everywhere, is what I'm learning. <laughs> There's lurking in the shadows. Well, you can set it. So I don't use the the iCloud syncing thing because it does weird things if you've got weird versions of your music. I don't want it. I basically don't want iTunes to do anything to my metadata. I'm very particular about my metadata. I don't want iTunes to do anything about the audio formatting. I, ju- I, ju- I just, I just want to have my audio files on my devices and I want to listen to it the way I want to listen to it. So my, my last pick is uh, a sheet music subscription service, uh, which is another great thing in these days when it can be hard to go to a store or get music shipped to you from Amazon or something like that. If you are a musician or wants to learn about music, um, it seems like, you know, every other startup is either the Netflix of something or the Uber of something. Well, this one is the, the Netflix of something. This is the Netflix of sheet music. It is a sheet music subscription service. It has scores. It has parts. If you have a small ensemble that you want to play with, it has, um, you know, show tunes, it has string quartets, it has, uh, piano vocal books from your favorite pop artists. It has giant orchestral scores and opera scores. It's got all kinds of good stuff. They have like Netflix, they have deals with many, though not all. I would even say most of the major sheet music publishing services, uh, have a deal with Encoda. It's 10 bucks a month and you get access to this huge library um, their score reader, if you're used to like reading music on an iPad, um, it's not quite as sophisticated as Fourscore, but that's not what you're here for. You're here for the library. Um, so, uh, it's very, very cool. I use it for teaching. Um, so I can, I can bring up score examples when I'm in class or in a lesson, but I also use it just because I want recreationally or you know, research-wise to study some scores. Uh, and there's a ton of really good stuff in Encoda. It's N-K-O-D-A. And it's on the App Store. You can get it on your Mac. You can use it on uh, Android. You can use it on Windows. And I think pretty soon it's actually going to be available to use in a web browser. So if you have somebody in your family, like a student who's learning the piano and they've got a Chromebook, um, I think pretty soon they should be able to use Encoda there too. I'm just looking at this website now, and there was a time in my life where I would have lost my mind to have an Encoda subscription. It, basically, all of the classical music is here. It seems like it's crazy. Yeah, they're they're they've got tons of stuff, and they and they've got like stuff like the Omnibook, Charlie Parker Omnibook. If if yeah. you want to do jazz stuff, oh man, I, um, I've got that on paper, man. That that that's one that's on the shelf right here. 
I, I'm going to reach out and lovingly stroke it as you say it. <laughs> as, as any gentleman would. We'll try not to take that out of context. And no, somebody will. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. I'm over it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so there are, there are plenty of things that are uh, like that, is, what, is yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're all in this thing. And I, like, when I first got it, that was like my, my Saturday morning routine, is I would kind of make myself a coffee and some breakfast, and I would just sit at the kitchen table with my iPad and flip through scores of things that... It, and a lot of them are scores that are just weird enough or unusual enough or uncommon enough or recent enough that it would be really hard for me to get from my university library so is, it's it's really is great. any of your stuff in here um there is i did uh so there's a there's a a kind of self-publishing format where you can put uh your own things in there and i just kind of did a test one of those i don't actually remember what piece it is i think it's actually a saxophone duet um that's on there but most of my music, I, uh, I sell for very reasonable prices on my own website, davidmcdonaldmusic.com. See how I snuck that in? Yeah. Yeah. Very impressive. Slick. So anyway, yeah. It, so not that you could like get together in a chamber ensemble and play any of it right now, but you know, that's a, that's a thing that is available to you if you want to just look at it recreationally. Um, but yeah, you can, you can put stuff in there. There's, you can, uh, if you want to listen to my music, there are recordings both on my website and I've got a few pieces that are commercially recorded and you can listen to on any major streaming service or, or, or whatnot. Um, you know, part of being a composer is that I am at the behest of performers to put my music on their records. And so it's kind of all scattered in a bunch of different places. Um, but, uh, uh, you you can you can find my music in some places and there's links to those and embeds of all those things on my site if you're curious to hear what uh after hearing me blather on about my my hazel rules if you're if you want to know what the person who writes those hazel rules his music sounds like <laughs> yeah we'll we'll be sure to have that link in the show notes for everybody that's awesome and Co- and coda has Eber's concertina de camera one time i just as a kind of a bar bet i proved i spent 3 months learning that song just so I could prove I played some classical saxophone. But it's here. I, I got to tell you, I've written a lot of classical saxophone because I went to school with a ton of just outstanding classical saxophonists at Michigan State University. And so I wrote, I've written a bunch of music for those guys. And so um, if you're ever curious to hear what a classical saxophone sounds like, there's plenty of that there too. Yeah, nice. Well, either way, um, David or Dr. David, thank you so much for coming on. You know, we didn't talk a lot about the difference between the iPad and the Mac today because you're just using the iPad all day from what I'm hearing. And uh, it's really impressive. And I'm always eager to hear from teachers, especially in higher education, that are bringing these tools to bear. Uh, Good Notes, of course, features in the title of the show, but uh, you're doing so much more than that. And thanks for sharing all of that with our listeners. You know, it's it's my pleasure. I love talking about it because I'm a nerd. And, you know, like you said, I, I just use the tools for what they're good at. And when they're not good at it, I find a different tool. Well, gang, we've got a bunch of links for Dr. David. Uh, you can get his music. You can learn about what he's doing. Uh, just look in the show notes. We've got all of it there. But if there is one link you want to take from the show, it is davidmcdonaldmusic.com. Go there, and I bet you can find your way to most of the stuff he's doing. That's M-A-C mcdonald got the full mac not like the restaurant like the computer like the computer like the farmer not like the restaurant there we go (laughs) (laughs) 
Thank you to our sponsors, Rogue Amoeba, Omni Group, FreshBooks, and 1Password. We're the Mac Power users. You can find us over at relay.fm slash MPU. Check out the forums over at talk.macpowerusers.com. And uh, we'll see you next time.